0: everybody. Welcome to the Energy News Beat podcast. My name is Stu Turley, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group. I'll tell you, there's a lot of crazy things going around the world right now. And having a world understanding of energy is very important because so many times as Americans, we just sit here and think, oh, I'm going to go to the store. But having people and discussions from around the world is more important now than it ever has been in the past. And today we're talking with Hugo Kruger, and I have butchered his name up. He is in Paris right now, but we've had a little bit of a chit chat right before we get here. And uh, Hugo, thank you for coming to the podcast. How do you pronounce your name?
1: <laughs> Hi, thank you, Stu. So, yeah, I'm South African in origin, and I speak my home language was Afrikaans. So, my name is pronounced Hugo Krier. But Hugo Kruger is fine for people from English-speaking countries. So I take no exception to that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now that's funny. You were saying also your sister is uh, looking at uh, becoming a Japanese citizen, and that's a new thing. So you're in Paris with your friend, uh, and your wife is Iranian. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So my family's all over the world, and then my parents still stay in South Africa. And I even had a brother who taught in, Ch- in China at one stage, who taught English there. So. It's it's a mixed uh, international family, I can say that, with roots you know, still in South Africa.
0: Being Americans, we are so Blinder-centric that we just don't even look at anything other than the grocery store or the, the next football game. I mean, we're too stupid. I mean, honestly. Um, and to hear this kind of a family gathering and everything else, you just were on David Blackman's uh, The Energy Question. That was a phenomenal interview as well, too. How did you get started as a South African in taking a look at energy around the world?
1: Sure. So um, I studied civil engineering originally. I was into construction. But my grandfather was an expert in what we call fly ash technology. Now, for those who don't know, where you burn coal, the if you pulverize it, you get fly ash. If you don't pulverize, it, you get what we call clinker ash. Clinker ash you can use in cement brick manufacturing. And fly ash, you can use this in addition to cement. So what used to be known as ordinary Portland cement, OPC, part of that OPC can be replaced by fly ash, right? And one adva- it's got many advantages, but one advantage is, advantages, for example, is you don't need to, you, when you build dams, like they did in the Hoover Dam, they put the water into the dam wall. Right. When you add fly ash to cement, you don't need to do that, okay? Because the, the yeah. hydration heat is lower. So coal has that supplement advantage to it. So I always knew something about the coal industry. There's an entire value chain attached to it. And I started working in cement manufacturing myself after graduating, okay, working for a company called Lafarge, which was a French company. Then at the time um, when I, I was studying French, because working for a French company, and our lecture said, listen, you have scholarships for people who want to go and study in France. So I got a scholarship to study in France. At the time, enrollment closed for cement and materials uh, science, and but I had the scholarship already. So I enrolled for a random degree in nuclear engineering um without knowing too much about it because I came from civil background. So it was the construction of nuclear power stations. Because this was twenty fifteen. And right. at that time France was rethinking already about the aging nuclear fleet. And oh, what yeah. do we do about it? So they had to study and analyze them. So they were first training engineers in construction to realize what the mistakes were before they were going to rebuild and upgrade them, do life extensions. That's how you're supposed to do it. Right. So France already started with a program going back as far as I can tell 2013. I was in one of the first classes enrolled in 2015. Nice. Then I started working in Hinkley Point C um, on the project in the UK. And the wow. French always like this. They go and build their mistakes in another person's country. Okay, so they built Hinkley Point C. They built Flamanville. Those costs exploded. <laughs> and now they restarted to say that, that project isn't going to work, so we're going to do EPR2. And they're going to rebuild 67 power stations very quickly after analyzing the errors in all their, core fleet, oh, in all their in the nuclear fleet and just uh, fixing it. And then... About two years, I worked in, Hinkley, in at ITER, the International Thermal Nuclear Reactor, which is a fusion reactor in the south of France, in en provence right. US is also involved with the project and um, worked there actually with a lot of American engineers. Um, then um, afterwards, I went into the oil and gas industry because the salaries were just higher, um, frankly. Right. And um, I thought, well, well, let me learn how they're going to do it because I learned a bit about coal when working in cement. Then I went into right. oil and gas. The, uh, oil and gas actually and offshore wind, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. That's what made me skeptical of offshore wind is actually working in the sector, <laughs> right? Because um, what the engineers and the the, the, the the analysts were saying in the companies and what the media was saying is just miles away from right. how people think how fast you can build it, how people think what they actually cost. Can we do it with or without subsidies? Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't, things of that nature. So I got to learn a little bit of that. I haven't worked in solar yet, but I've got a good sense of it works. So I've worked in many of the major energy sources. And I've actually, when I was working in concrete, worked a bit on dam construction as well in South Africa. So I, I know it's, it's all energy wow. related, right? So I, I've got a mixed bread experience, if you can say that, in particular in the construction of these things and, and how, do we, how they work. Yeah.
0: This is huge. And especially because uh, let, let's go back to uh, France for just a second. Mm. OK, France, I, I've been reading. And so I'm, this is why I love uh, podcasting is because I get to talk to folks from around the world. France uh, exports so much energy from their nuclear fleet, are they running only fifty percent capacity because of maintenance? I've heard been reading this that their their fleet is down from its capacity because they had not put much money back into the maintenance of their fleet. Is
1: that yeah true? that's is it's that- it's it's part of the reasons, yes. um first of all, when a plant gets older, its efficiency just goes down. Right. right, with age, degradation sets in. and then mid lifetime of any plant, you have to do a life extension. Right. But there was a few issues in France when President Francois Hollande got elected a few years ago, he wanted to win the marginal vote. So he appeased the <sighs> greens, okay? And then Greenpeace told him to make a decision to basically to put a target that France will have only fifty percent nuclear by twenty thirty or thirty five or something like that. Right. That decision alone, that pledge, wasn't even a full decision. A pledge alone made electricity to France fire the engineers, so they couldn't do life extensions. Okay. Wow. So it's actually systemic sabotage through policy. Fortunately, the French unions rebel. Okay. And um, they, conver- they What the French do is they never change their leaders. They change their advisors, and then they show them the guillotine. And <laughs> basically, they say to Macron, who was elected, because Macron was elected anti-nuclear. Can you believe that? Okay. And pro-Thatcher, which means destroy the nuclear fleet. So they changed all his advisors and they said to him, if you do, do not recommit to nuclear, right. we're going to vote you out. Okay. Now he's changed his religion and he's singing along. Okay. And that's how you sort oh. your politicians out. So anyways, there was a delay basically in France. They canceled their program. They fired the engineers. and Then they had to retrain them. So when I was working on uh, Hinkley Point C, it was myself in my 20s, a few people in their 30s, and then people who were about to enter retirement. So there was right. a skills gap. Anyway, so to answer your long question, yes, it has to do with a delay in maintenance, but the root cause is political. It's not that they didn't want to do it. It is that the politicians prevented them from doing it. Now they are fixing it, but it's going to cost money. So they have to increase the tariff a little bit. And Macron, again, before he won the last election, um, he didn't want to increase the tariff because it's price supply and demand correction, right? Right. And then he said we can keep it artificially low. So what does that do? It exploded electricity to France's debt, Right. So now the taxpayer has to bail out what the politician did to win the election. That's the problem with politics and energy. And the portion po- thing is, I don't see how you can ever eliminate it because you look at the U.S. You guys have the same issue in a different way, right? Right. Politicians will always try and go for energy because it's so easy to manipulate manipulate prices, you know, right. uh, to win an election. So th- there were a lot of systemic issues associated with what you're seeing. So it's 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 part true what you said, but it lacks context.
0: Wow, I'm a I'm a inter- I-, I read. Two or three hours every day on energy around the world. And you don't pick that up unless you sit down and talk to you know someone around the world. It's not in mainstream media. No. Uh, and, and it's like, holy smokes. Um, now your background, Hugo, is absolutely weird. You actually understand a total view of energy that few people uh, take a look at because it's you're not looking at a solar you're not looking at a wind you're looking at a total piece of the pine and when you're taking a look at coal king coal is back i mean look germany is now firing their coal plants back up where do you see 2024 going with coal around the world right
1: now so i've got uh, i'm going to list you the seven energy sources in the world okay Okay. I, i think first of all many people don't distinguish between energy and electricity and as you okay. and I both know, electricity is a subset of energy. Energy is much broader, right? right? Coal has a whole value chain attached to it. Dynamite, for example, is made from coal. Many people won't know that. The cement industry needs coal. The steel industry needs coal. Okay? Right. But if you look at the seven energy sources, let's list them from most green and most environmentally acceptable, to use that word, what would work in California, okay, to that which will not work in California at the bottom. So first is right. wind and solar at the top, Okay. Wind and solar have expanded at mass production. That is true. Wind less than solar, but nonetheless, solar has, because it's easy to put it on your rooftop. Rooftop solar has a high added value when it is for the daytime peak. But as soon as it starts penetrating 10 to 15% of the grid, you need to call on the natural gas guys to start ramping up, right? right? To run their assets more inefficiently. So wind and solar is constrained by the availability of gas, or if you're lucky, hydropower. Not every right. country in the world has hydropower countries of a large river have a large battery and they're constrained by grid space because the more wind and solar the more you have to build out the transmission lines and that's becoming a political issue in many countries so right. they take a neutral stand wind and solar is expanding but they're going to be constrained by what i just mentioned right. then okay then number three on the list is hydropower we spoke a little bit about it you right. need catchment areas the world has run out of catchment areas i also worked for firm designing plants so hydro plants World has run out of catchment areas so where there isn't more, with a few exceptions, maybe in Africa, but it's far away from population centers. Again, transmission line constraints, the average lead time is 10 years. Right? It's not going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> then pump storage, which is related to hydro power, also has a 10-year lead time, at least in South Africa. Some countries build it a bit faster, and some countries like the U.S. have excess already, so you can easily integrate wind and solar. Okay. So those are the three, first three green ones. Then we go to nuclear power. It's green depending on who you ask. But (laughs) nuclear power in the US is three to five times the cost of Asian markets. The Chinese and Indians are building at mass production, but Volktel has exploded in cost and is politically unacceptable in the United States. The US is the worst political economy when it comes to nuclear. France, given the experiences in Flamonville and Winkley Point C, has struggled to get costs under control because they overcomplicated the plant construction. So they have to sort out that issue yet. Japan, I saw today, we right. added eight gigawatt of nuclear, right? Right. Nuclear can be swung by public opinion. It happened in South Africa three times. So it's a constraint. Whether I'm for or against nuclear is not the argument. Is that those are constraints, and public opinions a constraint. If you have a lot of environmental legislation, right. it's gonna expand, okay? So what is then more acceptable? Well, oil. Oil has right. got a big issue, Middle East. My wife's from Iran. Um, right. Unless Saudi Arabia plays along and they roll out the red carpet to Joe Biden or Xi Jinping, Oil will be constrained by what OPEC does because Saudi Arabia is this big player in the market, right? They can dictate right. prices. In the U.S., it's a bit of less of an issue because most of your oil comes from Canada, but it's an issue for the rest of the world because most of the world is not North America, right? Right. Then you say, okay, I've gone through the six sources. What is? Le- oh, yeah. Then you've got LNG, which is um, more acceptable than oil. You would argue right. LNG is constrained by the availability of infrastructure. There's not a single import facility in Africa at the moment. I think Morocco might have finished one now. Africa right. only exports LNG. We don't import yet, okay, right. so we don't even use it for domestic cooking yet. All the stuff you did in the u s in the last ten to twenty years we haven't done it in Africa yet. Right. That is four out of ten of the world's population, okay, so we've gone through all of them. What is left? The most available, dirtiest of them all, which is Kingko King and that is why I say, like a heretic, okay, I'm not making myself popular saying these things. I do not see a stoppage to the expansion of coal. It might stop at a reduced rate in India or maybe in China now because China is adding pumped hydro to the rest of scale. But nonetheless, China is upgrading their coal plants. They're not expanding new ones. Many countries, I believe, is going to upgrade their coal plants for another 20 years. And in Africa, Botswana just built a new coal station last year. South Africa is thinking of overhauling the entire coal fleet. We are the most coal dependent country in the world. You know, and the rest of Africa hasn't even developed yet. So even if you add wind and solar and all the other sources to the mix, right. unless they can speak to those major constraints and there are others as well, I do not see why coal will not stop expanding. Simple as that.
0: I, you're, Hugo, you have just, in about a two-minute time period, gave one of the best world energy discussions I've had. Well done. Now, but when we sit back and take a look at nuclear, I'm a nuclear fan. I, I, you know, Again, I'm, I'm energy agnostic. I. It's let's get the lowest kilowatt per hour to everyone on the planet. Let's eliminate poverty. And the only way to do that is low-cost energy. Why is Africa having to take money from the International Monetary Fund uh, for renewable projects only? Why don't we get them natural gas uh, things and get them all the low cost of their natural resources and help them come along using clean technology.
1: That, to me, makes more sense. It it makes a lot more sense to us. And there's a few issues with what you just highlighted there. I'll give you an example. The South African president a man by the name of Cyril Ramaphosa. Okay, Cyril Ramaphosa has a brother-in-law by the name of Patrice Mutsepi. He's the third or fourth richest guy in the country. And he happens to be the biggest beneficiary of renewable energy. So the country has literally taken out Uh, loans to expand transmission infrastructure to basically connect the president brother-in-law, okay, to the grid. I mean, that is daylight corruption in South Africa. We are not alone in this. Mexico's ambassador, so the president the last year was announced as the ambassador for heat for the UN. I don't know what he's going to do, sell heat pumps or air conditioners. It's ridiculous. And what this means is cronyism being entrenched through these policies because they don't make intuitive sense. My view is If you ask me, should North America or Europe build more coal, my answer would be probably no. I don't think they should build anything except maintain the infrastructure because your electricity demand has been more or less stagnant, if not falling. But should Africa build coal? In the absence of anything else, it's a moral argument. Yes, they should. Countries like the DRC as majority of the population still in field poverty. And then John Kerry flies there in his greenhouse glass swimming plane and says to them, we are all in this together, guys. Really? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. and, and the problem with this is going to come when the Chinese and the Indians don't seem to care too much about these policies because they understand it because they recently developed right. these societies. They are opening up geopolitically. They're giving away, US and, and Europe is giving away Africa geopolitically to those countries. Yes. So, yes, we need wind and solar and we have lots of those reserves and we will exploit them. We will not follow the same path that America and Europe will follow through only coal. Right. But we still will need coal. OK, so our policy is still directional if you care about decarbonization, but right. it should not impede our expanding because we have different priorities. Two thirds of all South African men are out of work at the moment. Sixty, 70 percent of them are black. So by restricting the expansion of coal or just the maintenance of the coal fleet, which is what the World Bank, wants South Africa to do, I mean, it's just a callous and racist policy. There's no other way to put it.
0: Racism is alive and well in energy. Yeah. Uh, That could almost be a t-shirt and that makes me earsick. That just makes me puke to think that our the world leaders are racist.
1: And I'm well, the, the, the thing is, they, they come and they preach and they say it's for the greater good of everyone else. But that is exactly right. what Cecil John Rhodes and the great colonialists in the beginning of the last century did. They also believe they were spreading the gospel when they killed populations, indigenous populations. Here right. we are saying we're going to restrict your energy consumption uh, or we're just not going to allow you to exploit the resources underneath your feet. Right. And, you know, and again, I'm not saying a country should expand coal willy-nilly. Um, Most will not because solar and wind and nuclear and all these things are now part of the mix. They're part of the tools. Finally, at COP28, the world came around to accept nuclear. Africa's building a new nuclear plant in Egypt. We are going to build a new one in South Africa. We already have one, another one maybe. And I suspect Kenya is going to do it. But nuclear has never expanded in a country that is highly poor. It's expanded in countries that are sort of middle income. And that's where the best business case at the moment. So, I don't see why a country with illiteracy like uh Niger, for example, and those countries, 80, 90 percent illiteracy would be able to expand nuclear. Okay. Yep. Because they don't have the technical know-how, however you want to say it. But coal is easy for unskilled labor.
0: Let me have, okay, you bring up a great point. Small modular new the pebble bed modular reactor, the small reactors can be made and shipped in. And so the small yeah. they can be uh like Copenhagen Atomics uh, is making modular reactors, and they're going to be able to ship them around the world. That, to me, would be a stepping stone for smaller countries to be able to bring in a uh, ship in a nuclear reactor and then have local resources build it, because you're going to need concrete. You're going to need coal. You're going to need all that. But supplementing it with small uh, SMRs makes a lot of sense,
1: doesn't it? it? It does. Um, I would just say this. With nuclear, generally speaking, it might not be the case for SMRs, yes, because it's difficult to find costs. But generally speaking, with nuclear, the capital expenditure is higher than coal, but right. the operational expenditure is lower. Okay? Right. So you build it for long term to replace coal. I would argue countries must have coal and then nuclear, but SMRs can be an intermediary step or even a leapfrog step. The challenge with SMRs, though, is this. Definitely. The first one is been connected in Russia and China. Okay. The U.S. Yeah, is not building any yet until 2028 or 9, which is a pebble bed Modular reactor, X-Energy. Copenhagen Atomics is molten salt reactors. They st- I spoke to some of them. They still need um, to solve some R&D issues with the salt control process. It can be done, but they say it needs time. It's sometimes more time of money to understand the thing. So I don't believe SMRs are going to scale en masse within this decade. I might be wrong oh. with the Chinese coming in, but um, it, that's just sort of a fact. So what do you do for the next 10 years? Okay. Yes, we should prepare ourselves. So my argument's always been this, countries that can afford it, do what Egypt and South Africa is doing now, which is just one or two more nuclear stations, not the entire grid. And then you use that to skill people and use it as a springboard, larger reactors for SMRs to come in online.
0: I love that. Now, the UAE just fired up theirs. Uh, I just interviewed uh, Grace Stanky, the Miss America How cool is that? We have Miss America running around the world as a nuclear engineer. She just got her degree and uh, it's providing, I believe, uh, Hugo, forgive me, but I think it's around 20 percent. It's a
1: quarter, 25 percent,
0: 25 percent of their power on one nuclear reactor. That's cool. And that is a a good example of what you describe, Hugo, was a, a society that's further along in their economic. Here's a nuclear for a baseload that allows you to do so many other things.
1: That's right. And the, you should. what's interesting about that reactor is um, I looked at the costing curves. South right. Korea was building it. So, so the three countries that are leading the race for nuclear construction at the moment is South Korea, Russia and China right. and India within their own market and Japan in spare parts. U.S. and France has unfortunately lost the knees. France might be back again. I hope the U.S. gets back in the game because AP-1000 is a good reactor. They just need to learn how to build it properly. Right. Um, but what the South Koreans did is very remarkable. So the cost of a nuclear reactor at the bottom of the S-curve is about $3,000 per kilowatt or 3 billion per gigawatt. Okay, That is more or less where you to come in. The South Koreans built the first one at 4.5, the first reactor, and then they got off at the fourth reactor they were building out of their country at the same cost they were building inside of South Korea. That's their first ever reactor in the export market. They outperformed the Russians on that reactor. Wow! So South Korea is really the country that's carrying the flagship for the democratic countries. They're better than the Russians at the moment with their first ever reactor.
0: Wow! Now, uh, Russia, the uh, uranium is a huge issue. When you take a look at the uranium, you know, and you and looking at who's supplying all of that. Besides our political problems with uranium, I mean, we have a huge uranium deposit that our Biden administration just shut down. So, you know, we have a, an anti-energy policy, but who controls uranium is also going to control where it goes out.
1: Correct? Yeah, so uranium, I, slight disagreement there, um, uranium prices crashed after Fukushima because Japan closed so many reactors and they replaced them with gas, and now they're restarting them. So prices might go up a little bit. France, for example, had two or three mines in Niger, um, and then there was a coup d'etat recently. But what they don't tell you is this French Senate wanted to close down some of those mines because they were an economic burden on the French fiscus. And the reason France kept them there is because Niger is such a poor society. There's no other work for the population. So the uranium price is so low, it's questionable if countries should even exploit because you just buy it on a market. But I think what you're referring to there is the processing, the end of the process. So right. there's a consortium in France from many countries, or Orano, that does it, and then the Russians. And the Russians control most of that at the moment because most of the reactors in Europe are Russian. But it's easier to revert that process to a European process, or even the US can get into it. The US are talking about restarting that domestically. Right. But the question is, who's going to pay for it? And it's going to be your taxpayer again. Okay, so do they want to fund it, right? So there's right. a little bit of this politics, but the cost of... Operating uranium and processing is so tiny. I mean, it is, it's not even a question. It's, it's, it's something like $5 per kilowatt of per megawatt of electricity. It's really remarkably low. So the operational cost of a nuclear plant, once the capital expenditure is paid off, is, in my view, more competitive than wind and solar. For Germany to restart their um, nuclear reactors would be something like $25 per megawatt hour. Right. That can even outperform natural gas under certain conditions, Right. So why aren't they doing it? And the answer is there's a fear of nuclear power. And humans have to overcome this fear. And the Germans have to admit they made a mistake. But that's never going to happen, right? In politics, you never lose face. But they're
0: taking down wind farms and, and opening, reopening their coal plants.
1: Yeah. And, and the thing about their coal is that people are saying, yes, they are burning less coal. That's true. But what they don't tell you is for a coal plant to operate efficiently, Right. Uh, it needs to run almost all the time just to recover its cost. It's, it's not a very profitable business to be in. And the problem now is if you run a coal plant only for two or three days of the year, what happens to your price of electricity? It shoots through the roof. So what are the Germans doing during this the area of no wind, no sun? They're just saying, well, we're going to impose a low electricity price or it converts to debt. So the Germans are making the same mistake that the Japanese in the 1970s and 80s made, which was all their bad decisions are being converted to debt. And who's going to pay for the public debt in the future? Well, that's your children. Okay. So, yes, wow. they are, the coal, people would tell you coal grabs, Europe is burning less coal. That's all true. But it's an economically inefficient usage of the asset. And what I my biggest critique against wow. this energy transition is this. Um, yeah, okay, fine. You're, you have more wind and solar. But electricity consumption in Europe has been falling since 2005. Okay. And in North America, it's also been stagnating. So who's going to pay for that? You're right. adding all these assets. You cannot recover the cost for electricity. Where is it going to come from? Right. It's going to come from public debt. So you have un- economically inefficient assets at the moment. And Europe has, at the moment, the highest electricity prices, the highest gasoline prices, okay, right. and you know, uh, some of the highest LNG prices. So somebody in Europe has to ask the question, are we doing something that's economically sane? I don't believe they are. No,
0: so I got uh, I got kind of um, in trouble several years ago. I I made a, a meme of a dog, and the dog is doing this, and I I put it in there and it says, "You mean the greener we go, the more fossil fuels we use?" And everything I'm seeing is that was actually a true statement. That meme went nuts. So I mean, I had actually. All the numbers I was showing was the more we go greener, quote unquote, renewable energy, the more fossil fuels we use, which was also coal, everything else. And it's we just need all forms of energy. But your description, Hugo, of using the best methodology is what's missing from all these discussions.
1: Yeah, it, it comes down to the cost, right? And and maybe we should ramp on the issue. There's another issue here, which is how do you price electricity in particular? Right. Okay. So at the moment, we sell it in kilowatt hours in the US and North America and many countries. Indonesia and Spain and Netherlands, in my view, have the right model. Right. Where they're saying we have a fixed charge, which you used to call a capacity charge. It's, I think farmers in the US have something similar. And we have a variable charge. Because if you buy electricity, whatever your price in kilowatt hours is, usually 10 to 15% is only energy. Now, somebody comes and says, I've got a solar panel on my roof. I'm going to offset the entire rate in kilowatt hours. Right. In my view, he's not allowed to do that. He should only offset 10 to 20%. Okay. Why? Right. Because somebody has to pay for the service to the end connection to the house. So as long as you are grid tight, you should be paying a fixed tariff for the utility to recover its cost. Unless you go fully off-grid, then you shouldn't pay it. But very few people can afford a full battery installation in their house, even in Europe and North America. Right. So as long as you're tied to the grid, the utility should not be bankrupt. And the, the state I'm looking at in the U.S. at the moment is California. There's a very interesting thing that recently happened when they just added the service cost to the electricity. And what's happening? A lot of people who put PVs on their homes realize that they have stranded assets. And the reason for this is simple. It makes no sense for me to grow my own food and compete against the Portuguese grocer. Okay. Yes, it feels nice to make your own food and all of that. But let's face it, the grocer is more efficient economically. I have the same feeling about energy. I don't believe I should be generating my own power. Okay. Large companies should be doing it, and they should have a market between them so I, I, i'm I'm skeptical against this idea of a distributed grid where everyone is a producer his own producer. Right. I think that thing is eventually going to come you know to an end when many utilities wake up and add this fixed tariff and uh, it's coming you know and I think it's coming in Texas as well because the price of backup has to be reflected absolutely and and so you
0: bring up some some great point my head's kind of spinning here um and You know, it's the total cost of energy when you take a look at also uh, wind farms. When you drive through West Texas, I mean, Texas, Mm -hmm. uh, to my office in West Texas, uh, there's wind farm after wind farm after wind farm. And there are some of them that are just uh, being abandoned. Uh, When you do you cost uh, out the removal of that wind farm when it hits the end of its life after eight years? i'm I'm kidding, no, I'm not. Uh, you know, and fiscally, without tax subsidies, they're not fiscally sustainable from day one. Um, and so uh, do you, how who takes that out of that farmland? uh It's about four hundred and twenty thousand dollars just to get the steel and concrete out of the ground. Yeah. Does that go into the kilowatt per hour at the
1: beginning? I I, I very much doubt it. Um, I don't believe they are profitable even. Look, onshore wind in Texas might be some of the few places where they might have a business case. But I know offshore wind in particular, um, I don't believe they have a business case in many jurisdictions across the world. The, right. the ones in France we worked out in, in the north of France could not have a business case. So eventually, another, the European government said, we'll give you subsidies. And then, of course, as a contractor, you'd say we will accept subsidies for those things. Oh, why, sure. would, why, why wouldn't you? You know, It's just my bread and butter. But I don't believe if you've cut the subsidies away that many of these things have a business case. And now you ask another question. What if the wind doesn't blow? Okay. What is going to happen now? And then in Texas, you have to start up your gas turbines, right? Because you guys right. are a gas state. Now, we're running to the same argument we have with the coal. If I have to run a gas turbine for only a few days of the year, right. what happens to the cost recovery of the gases, gas price? Right. Because it, it, it cannot recover its cost, so I have to shoot up the price. And that means the consumer, at the end of the day, is going to pay for a very expensive battery. Exactly. Okay, so it's economically inefficient uses of assets. My view has been this. The price of backup has to fall on the wind producer. He has to pay for that.
0: And that makes sense because uh, ERCOT is its own um, grid in Texas. And the balancing authorities through the United States have to sit there and they pay for standby power as they're going through this. And so even if it's a uh, uh, energy storage battery sitting there, they get paid to sit there and not deliver energy. Um, and so that is actually the business scam going on on these things is that exactly. the only way to make money is a bit battery is to sit there and tie it to the grid so that you get paid not to have to have battery. I don't get this.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I'll tell you, the issue is this we have in the US, we have a price in kilowatt hours where we put like auctions. Okay? Right. Most countries in the world. That made sense in the days of vertically integrated utilities, or when you only had dispatchable plants compete against each other, when you had coal against nuclear. Even then, it didn't make fully sense, but it made some sense against gas. But here's the problem. What does natural gas do to your grid? It provides synchronous power, it provides ramping, it provides grid stability, it have got all the other functionalities. Right. I argue that is a service cost, right? So my view is that must be priced in fixed terms. People must pay $100 a month for whatever the price in Texas would be. But then the variable price will be much less. It will be 10% or 15% of what it is now in Texas. So your price per kilowatt hour will be less, but you'll have a fixed price. So at the end of the month, you still pay the same amount. It's just the structuring of the thing is different. And Hmm. then what would happen is the wind and solar guys can still compete in an auction, but they'd be competing for much fewer dollars per kilowatt hour. And that is the market correction that is necessary. It's a regulatory failure, I've argued. So I argue the regulator hasn't woken up yet. And the regulator that's woken up, strangely enough, I didn't expect that is California. Because they had to add this fixed tariff to cover recover the cost of utility. So the price of backup, the price of sink power, the price of the grid, the price to guarantee an end service to your house should be a fixed tariff. And then you'll have a variable market associated with that. And when you do that, I suspect the market will be much more in correction and we will end the debate because then we have the correct incentive structure for them to still make a competition. And what I suspect is during the day and at night, wind will have a business case and solar will have one, but they'd be far less competitive than they look at the moment because the backup is not priced correctly into the market, into the model. Oh, you, you,
0: man! You brought up some great points, but let me throw this at. You. I'm, I'm sorry. This is a great conversation. I'm, I'm getting excited because you sit back and take a look. California is twice as expensive as Texas, uh, and it's. You said that they may have just broken into that new new realm of price pricing, getting it fixed, but the consumer is going to pay for it. Uh, because they have now extended, uh, is it Diablo Canyon to yep. eighty years? So they've now got a, a reactor that's going to last up to eighty or even longer, um, and it's ten percent. I think of their power,
1: they'd be dead meat without that. Um, yeah, but you see, under the current pricing model before the reform, in California Diablo Canyon is losing. Is probably losing money. I wouldn't be surprised because why the wind guys can auction right Uh-oh. and they're auctioning zero and then they switch off and on diablo can't switch off and on that's an issue but diablo provides baseload and stability and it's not being paid for that through the current pricing model no it's so, not so my view is the service that diablo provides is a fixed price the electricity is not all that it provides it provides a stability in wow. a service and that the the regulator in california got it by accident they got the right answer that is my belief and I explain to people like a cell phone, okay? So I started my career also in cell phones, by the way. It's my first six months job, very short career. All right. And when you have a cell phone, you right. pay a fixed tariff and you have a variable price for data, right? right. So whether I phone my mom five or six or 10 times a month, it doesn't matter. It's a fixed price. And data, I really have to draw a lot of data before it becomes a problem in most countries in the world. Why right. is it priced that way? Because there's a cell phone tower that's on all the time, right? Right. And when lightning hits that cell phone tower, what happens? There's guys with a pickup truck and a diesel generator running because they don't want to lose all those people. So the fixed tariff is determined by your worst case scenario, the price of emergency fuel. And what is the price of emergency fuel? What is the emergency fuel in the electrical system? It's the price of natural gas in the US, right. coal in Germany, two days of a day, or coal in South Africa depends on jurisdiction. So in other words, your battery price should be your fixed tariff. And that is what we're not pricing right at the moment. And I believe if you have that reform, you'd fix the incentive structure and then you would not see um, data centers leaving California anymore because people would say it just makes no business sense. Probably many of the solar panels on the roof would be stranded assets or they would pay themselves back in 10 to 20 years, or right. 20 to 30 years. And then you'd be like, okay, should I get something that pays back in 20 years? Then the business sense comes into proportion. But for a large company, it might still make sense to have solar panels because I do believe they have a business case. I just think that we're not we're not playing it right because they should not be allowed to drive the utility into bankruptcy. And currently they're doing no. it because the utility is still providing a service.
0: I think corruption, we come back to corruption is why these regulations are not being... Uh, changed, if you want my honest opinion, because who's making the money?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, in South Africa, the renewable industry is resisting these reforms. Um, I know people from ESCOM, our nationalized utility, who say to them, look, we are incurring a loss every year. The government's giving us debt extensions. Right. This cannot go on or we will sink the national fiscus. South Africa is going to run bankrupt if they don't have to reform. Every year, all these renewable guys say to them, we totally agree with you. Um, totally agree, in principle, everything. And what happens then? When the regulator has to make the reform, there's a public outcry, there's a media attack, they're killing the solar and wind industry, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And eventually we will run out of money. South Africa is close to a fiscal cliff at the moment. California is running out of money. And it's usually when people run out of money when reality sets in. And I right. I, I reckon what happened in California recently is what's going to... I mean, what's it saying when what California leads, America follows... I reckon something like that is going to happen at the moment. <laughs> okay. And it's interesting that the green states are figuring it out. I mean, this is not Texas, you know, so it's not fossil fuel industries. They can't blame you and me oh, for corrupting the system.
0: <laughs> no, uh, no, I, I I, hate it when you're right. And boy, your conversation's making a lot of sense. Oh, wow. Um, I'm sitting here kind of going, oh, Hugo, you're a brilliant Um and, and when the Greens get it right and then we get to pay, never mind. OK, I had a joke <laughs> before, this, before we get totally canceled on that. As part of a solution, though, corruption in the U.S., corruption in Africa and, mm-hmm. and corruption in eliminating poverty is, I think, one of the biggest problems. But how do we as average citizens articulate what we just talked about? And what are our next steps? What do you think we sh- we can do to help get this word out there to get this under the next step?
1: Well, the the, the the first point is to have conversations like this and for people to recognize the issue is systemic. This is my view. Um, it makes no sense as we say the public data is exploding and apparently electricity is getting cheaper, right? Some There's a difference. And my view is just we need to recognize first the system has got issues with it attached to it. Right. And any system in energy, unfortunately, is prone for cronialism and corruption and things because of the large right. sum of money. And I would add, even the oil and gas industry, even the nuclear industry, there are no exceptions to corruption. Okay, We try and eliminate it as much as possible. And the right. way to eliminate corruption, I mean, there are various ways. It is generally to argue for rules that will make it less likely for middlemen to climb in and pretend to be entrepreneurs of a government subsidy, You know, all those things you and I do. So I would say eliminate the subsidies as far as possible. Right. Or if you have a country like South Africa with a nationalized utility, that's fine. It can work. But then it needs to be structured well. We currently have a problem where our Minister of Energy can determine subcontractors for a nationalized utility. Okay. That's obviously going to result in corruption. So you know systems like this we need to there's always red flags in systems and I think also if we learn from different countries what not to do it's sometimes a good <laughs> it's sometimes a good strategy if you just avoid all the red herrings you know all the red flags you, you'd be fine
0: well, I'll tell you what, uh, Hugo. I cannot wait. I'd love to have you back again on the podcast. I was abs. This felt like about three minutes to me because of your knowledge in this conversation. How do people find you on your Substack? It's uh, I'll have it in the in the link, but uh, how do you pronounce your own Substack?
1: <laughs> so, so the Substack to the US audience it's Hugo's newsletter, but it should be Hihu's newsletter to if you speak the other languages. <laughs> and then I've I've got a small channel on YouTube as well uh, where I do interviews like this, go usually in depth on energy stuff, uh, other topics as well, okay. and you know I write on geopolitics as well, Middle East because my wife's Iranian, I know that country very well, and um, you know things things of that nature. I've done a lot of interesting research on interesting topics of this nature well
0: fantastic well thank you so much for stopping by the energy newsbeat podcast my name's Stu turley and hugo we will see you again soon thank you thank you
1: steve and thank you to listeners